It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is a conversation with Dan Kavalek, who wrote the book Cancel This Book, a progressive case against the cancel culture. In the Washington News Report... Washington's new paint recycling program follows in Oregon's footsteps. Herrera Butler says she's not campaigning despite rare public appearance. All this and more on today's edition now. Cancel this book by Dan Kavalek. Hello there. This is Daryl Hamilton and Yay for Skagit Talks. Gina Carano, Sharon Osborne, and even Dr. Seuss. It seems like every day someone or something is being is getting canceled. Today, I'll be speaking with Daniel Kovalik, author of the book, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Daniel, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Daryl. I'm really happy to be here. And before we get into your book, can you talk a little bit about your your background? Yeah. um, I uh, studied law at, at Columbia Law School in New York, and I was a labor lawyer for 26 years, worked here in Pittsburgh for the United Steelworkers Union. And I've also been an activist uh, my whole life, really, my whole adult life. And uh, so now I'm semi-retired, but I do teach uh, at the law school here in Pittsburgh. Okay, interesting, interesting. And as if I even have to ask, but I will because that's my job, and that is what prompted you to write your book? Yeah, well, this issue was something that I, you know, certainly have been concerned about for a while, but I, there was a particular event that happened in Pittsburgh that really inspired me to, to write the book. And it was, uh, of, uh, involved a cancellation of a longtime peace activist named Molly Rush here in Pittsburgh. She, uh, is a very prominent peace activist. She helped found uh, the Thomas Merton Center here in Pittsburgh, one of the oldest peace and justice centers in America. And um, last May, um, she posted uh, something on Facebook, reposted something, you know, one of those things where you just hit share and she shared it. And it was a meme. And the meme had a picture of Martin Luther King and it said, never uh, rioted, never looted, change the world. And um, she was immediately mobbed on, on Facebook. And she ended up apologizing. She, she said she didn't realize it would be offensive to people. Um, but that wasn't enough. They ultimately, the Thomas Merton Center, which again, she helped to found 50 years ago, uh, posted a uh, open letter saying they could no longer work with her because of one meme. Um, they sent that letter also to all the members of the Thomas Merton Center. Um, and it was just an incredible thing, you know, where whatever you think about the meme, it certainly wasn't of a, you know, a type that I believe she should have been, her whole life's work should have been eradicated for. And it felt like that's what happened. That there, even once she apologized, there was no chance at redemption for her. And I think that's a big thing that I see with the cancel culture, this idea that 
you can have one honest slip up and have your job lost or friends lost and it just one doesn't seem fair but also it, it seems counterproductive from the point of view of trying to build a social justice movement right because you're alienating people or shunning people who are your allies and want to be your allies that may not be perfect who of us are um but they could be brought around but but many times there's no attempt to bring them around it's just to punish mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. yeah so that's that that's what led me to to write this okay and I would just like to quickly point out that your book is not out yet, but it will be available on April 27th of this year. Is that correct? That's correct, Daryl. Okay. I would also like to point out that, as stated in the subtitle of your book, that you are a progressive. You are not a conservative or Republican. You are a left of center. Would that be a fair assertion? Yeah, in fact, I would consider myself a leftist, not, not even a liberal. I, I consider myself a leftist, a Marxist. Um, yes. Okay. Okay. And the reason I, I point that out is because a lot of times in the mainstream media, you hear, and especially from those on the left, is that cancel culture doesn't exist. And I would assume from your research, and since you have an entire book about it, that cancel culture is real and it's alive and well. Yes, absolutely. You know, and you see it every day. I just saw, for example, that Angela Davis was uninvited from a, a, a speaking uh, gig at a university uh, because of her support for, for Palestinians. And so she was um, Zionist on campus, uh, um, organized to get her uh, appearance canceled, and they did so successfully. And you see this sort of thing all the time. I mean, it, to me, to, to claim that this phenomenon doesn't exist is really a form of gaslighting. I mean, we all know it exists. I mean, I, and I don't want to be, you know, hysterical about mm -hmm. it um, or claim it's some nas national, you know, crisis, but it's a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a phenomenon, and, and we should acknowledge that and, and talk about how to, how to deal with that. Most definitely. Now, talk a little bit about your book and what are some of the main issues that you address well, I address a lot of things. I mean, one, you know, one theme, at least I hope that I got across was the idea that when we approach, again, as organizers, as people interested in building a movement, that we have to approach the work we do with compassion, with understanding, with forgiveness. I mean, um, and, you know, the one thing that comes up in, in some of the talks that, that I have on this is that um, in the current discourse, many people will say intention doesn't matter. In fact, in this letter I mentioned from the Thomas Merton Center, they say exactly that. It didn't matter what Molly's intention was. What she posted was offensive. By the way, they didn't even say what she posted. You had to guess if you didn't know. Um, and that was that. Of course, intention matters, right? The white supremacist who spouts racist venom is not the same as a progressive person who, again, may misspeak or who may be misinformed or who simply doesn't say something in the way we think they should say it. And we should approach those people, again, uh, with at least an attempt 
um, if we think they're wrong, to correct them in a, in a, in a again, uh, I think uh, a compassionate way, and not to immediately jump to judge people and to to get them fired or, or shunned. Exactly, I totally agree. Um, and we live in a, a democratic society where free and open speech plays a huge role in that. So, what effect does cancel culture have on that, or can have on that? Yeah, well, I think what has happened, and it's sad, is that, uh, and again, what I, I do focus on on liberal, you know, left of center cancellation. There is obviously a whole right wing cancellation culture. I think they they obviously cancel each other on different things, but I focus on uh, on the left. And what I would say is that what I see is that the you know the left in the U.S. caring less and less about free speech and about discourse. And caring more about, uh, again, punishing people. And what that does is prevent us from talking about important issues. And I'll give an example. And again, this is this is a controversial thing. But the, what Molly raised in that meme, whether we like the way she raised it, is the question of violent tactics in a in a in a peace movement or in a justice movement. Right. That is a fair. That is a fair grist for discussion. We have to have that discussion. Um, I think there is time, certainly, for um, – I'm not a pacifist. I certainly think at times you may have to pursue some sort of violent path for social justice, but I think that's a last resort, and I think many times it's counterproductive. And we at least have to be able to talk about that and have a discussion on that. But again, in this case – a lot of what people were saying is, well, you can't, um, you know, tell people how they want to go about their liberation struggle. You know, if they want to use violence, want to riot, loot, you can't be critical of that. Um, and I don't believe that. I think if you want people to be part of a movement, they should have some ability to say what they think the tactic should be. Um, the other interesting thing, the, the interesting phenomenon about uh, the protests over the summer that I point out is a lot of the violence that took place uh, was done by young white males, either left-wing anarchists, uh, and we saw a lot of that in Portland, for example, pretty much every night around midnight, um, or right-wing young <laughs> white guys who were doing it to either you know try to foment a race war or to undermine the BLM movement. In any case, um, you what you saw was uh, the George Floyd protest in some cases being hijacked by young white males who had other ideas about what they wanted to do. Now, if that is true, and I think it's true, that there were people in Portland, for example, quoted in the newspaper paper from the NAACP, from the Black Lives Matter movement, who condemned the violence, saying this has nothing to do with black lives. You know, every, you know, around midnight, the young anarchists come out and they attack the federal court. It's not helping our cause. We need to talk about those things. Uh, we, and we need to talk about facts if that is happening. We have to acknowledge it's happening, not pretend it's not happening, um, and take it on head on. In the end, I believe, and I think the polls showed it, that those tactics hurt the movement that, that you had before the George Floyd murder 
um, you had a fairly low support in the country for Black Lives Matter. After his murder and, and in the early days of the protests, the support for Black Lives uh, Matter uh, went up greatly amongst all races, amongst all backgrounds. But as the protests continued throughout the summer and as there were some violent incidents, and again, I don't want to exaggerate it, the, the, you know, there were some studies saying that 93, what was it, 93% of the protests were, um, were peaceful. But there were thousands of protests, so 7% of thousands is not insignificant, right? And it turned people off. And so in the end, BLM was, was polling with less approval at the end of the summer than it was before the George Floyd killing. So we have to acknowledge that some of the things that happened didn't serve the movement. And why can't we say that? Why can't we talk about that? And I think what is happening is that ability to discuss things is just being cut off. Most definitely, I totally agree. Um, I will, uh, there are a lot of questions I want to I want to ask you, but unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. But I will get to this. Um, if we continue down this road where we're currently on with this whole cancel culture craziness, uh, what do you predict will happen? Well, I mean, I think ultimately it, it, it is a movement that consumes itself. The cancel culture is a snake eating its own tail. And it's going to undermine intellectual uh, uh, discourse and progress. It's going to undermine the social justice movement. Instead of building a bigger tent to fight the 1%, uh, you know, who own everything, it's going to alienate a lot of people and the movement will suffer. And the 1% will win um, as a result. And I think that that is, is a huge shame and a huge missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what do you suggest is the way uh, to fight back against this cancel culture? Well, I think for one, uh, people have to be brave enough to speak their own minds on these types of issues. Obviously in a respectful way, but people should not fear saying what they think about the important issues of the day. And I think that if they see people being canceled in ways they think is unfair, they need to speak up in, on behalf of the, the, the people targeted for cancel cancellation. A lot. The only reason this works, the only uh, reason cancellation can happen is because of the silence of people who think it's wrong but are afraid to say anything because they're afraid they will be the next target. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I said to myself, you know, I have to just say this. I have to say I don't support this. And, and maybe that'll give uh, some courage to other people to do the same thing. We have to be honest with each other. We have to reach out to each other, not be afraid to talk to each other. And again, I think for those in the progressive movement, we need to be restrained in how we treat each other. And again, I think we need to come from from a position of compassion and, and, and forgiveness and off, offer redemption to people. Most definitely. Has anyone uh, tried to cancel you? Not over this yet, mm -hmm. though I'm sure it will happen. Uh -huh. <laughs> In fact, my, my family's girding their loins <laughs> for that. Um, but I, I, I've been canceled. I was canceled, actually, strangely enough, in Edinburgh, Scotland. I, I had made a film about Nicaragua that's 
you know, pretty pro Sandinista and the left is, is pretty much turned on the Sandinistas. And, uh, anyway, I was supposed to show it in Edinburgh, Scotland. And the day before, um, I was to appear and show this film, I, I was canceled by, believe it or not, a faculty union because they felt that, uh, you know, the Sandinistas somehow were on the wrong side of history and that, that, that the movie should be canceled again, that, that it wasn't worth even, you know, hearing me out about uh-huh, it, right? Yeah. And that's just incredible. And unfortunately, as you kind of demonstrate that, if we if this kind of continues, at some point, everybody's going to get canceled. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And unfortunately, we're kind of running out of time. So once again, I've been speaking with Daniel Kovalik, author of the book, Cancel This Book, the progressive case against cancel culture. Dan, you thank you again for joining me today. Daryl, it was a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Daryl Hamilton Manier for Skagit Talks. Here's the Northwest News Report. If you've got a half-used paint can piling up in your garage and you just don't know how to get rid of them, you're in luck. Washington has started a new paint recycling program. It follows one like in Oregon. Northwest Public Broadcasting's Courtney Flat has more. Leftover paint can be a hassle to store and get rid of, especially if you've ever tried to mix it with kitty litter before throwing it away. Paint that's still liquid can drip out of garbage trucks and cause big headaches to clean up. In the environment, it can leak into water bodies and seep into the ground. Every year, around 10% of the paint people buy goes unused. Now, Washington residents have another option. They can bring most unused paint to a drop-off site so it can be recycled, says the Department of Ecology's Megan Warfield. It's a never-ending cycle. People are always going to want to paint, and they're always going to have just a little bit left over that they want to get rid of. A fee will be added to cans of paint to pay for the paint care program. Oregon was the first in the nation to enact a paint stewardship law 12 years ago. In 2019, it collected nearly 770,000 gallons to recycle. I'm Courtney Flat reporting. The Southwest Washington Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler visited a vaccination clinic in Vancouver on Monday. It marked her first in-person appearance in Clark County since she voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Troy Brendelson reports. Herrera Butler's visit came during two dilemmas in her district. One was a recent shortage of vaccines, which has since turned around. The congresswoman spoke on this topic at length. I mean, I saw it in, in most of my counties. They just weren't getting the attention that they needed. But that's what we get um, you know, put in these positions for. Our job is to go there and to advocate. The other dilemma is the vocal Republican challenge to unseat her because she broke ranks and voted to impeach Trump in January. Although there are already three challengers seemingly in full campaign mode, Herrera-Butler said she's not. The people who have elected me to do this job expect me to do it, so we can talk about elections next year when we get into election season. In November, Herrera-Butler won her sixth term in office. In Vancouver, I'm Troy Brennelson. Here's 2021 Talks, following our democracy in historic times. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. It is great to be in Oakland and to be home. Vice President Kamala Harris was back on her old turf of California Monday to promote the American Jobs Plan, which includes $111 billion for water infrastructure. We must understand how precious this resource is. We must understand the equities and inequities of distribution and access to clean water, especially clean drinking water. Republicans argue the $2 trillion plan is too broad. Others believe it's not enough. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey called for Biden to go bigger. Our country needs a roadmap. 
for Recovery that addresses the intersecting crises that we face as a nation and a planet. The climate crises, a public health pandemic, racial injustice, and economic inequality. The White House wants to fund the proposal through corporate tax code changes and other measures to discourage overseas investments. Democrat West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he'll support raising the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 25 percent, not the 28 percent Biden proposes. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wants other nations to join the U.S. in imposing a global corporate tax minimum. The United States needs to have a strong presence in global markets on a level playing field. Yellen argued the taxation of multinational corporations spurs innovation, growth, and prosperity. In a protest over Major League Baseball's stance on Georgia's new voting law, Texas Governor Greg Abbott declined an invitation to throw the first pitch of the Texas Rangers' home opener. Abbott said MLB's decision to pull the All-Star game from Atlanta was based on a false narrative about election reforms. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell also weighed in on the controversy by warning CEOs to stay out of politics. Speaking in Kentucky, he called corporations protesting the law bullies. McConnell also encouraged people to get the COVID-19 vaccine, noting stories he's heard of hesitancy among Republican men. These reservations need to be put aside because the only way I think we get to finally put this pandemic in the rearview mirror is with herd immunity. The White House later thanked McConnell on Twitter for taking leadership in the vaccine rollout. A federal appeals panel vacated a Trump administration rule that would have prevented the EPA from setting greenhouse gas limits on sectors whose pollution accounts for more than 3% of the country's total emissions. The oil and gas industry would likely have been exempt. And with the traditional Easter egg roll canceled for a second year due to the pandemic, President Joe Biden spoke from a White House balcony Monday alongside the First Lady and a masked Easter bunny. Biden said, in celebrating the renewal of the season, a longed-for dawn nears. We will rebuild our nation. We will re-engage and reimagine what we can be. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Thanks for listening. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, April the 6th, 2021. I'm Mike Clifford. Maine is one of 10 states that does not allow residents to register to vote online, but a bill before the legislature there would change that. Here's Lily Bulky. The State Legislative Committee on Veterans and Legal Affairs heard testimony for LD 1126, which would create an online voter registration system by 2023. Megan Sway with the ACLU of Maine says it would increase access to the ballot. Currently, to register, Mainers have to fill out a voter registration card and provide proof of residency and photo ID in person, either at town offices or city halls, motor vehicle branch offices, most social service agencies, or voter registration drives. COVID showed that we can make changes, that we can make voting more accessible, that we can include more people in our democracy. And online voter registration is one of those ways in which we can modernize and expand this access. Sway points out that Maine has traditionally high voter participation rates, boosted by same-day registration and no-excuse absentee voting. She says online voter registration would further boost ease and access for veterans, college students, those who work long hours during the week, as well as Mainers who live in rural areas or have mobility issues. 
In the nation's capital, the Senate parliamentarian ruled Monday Democrats can use special budgetary rules to avoid a GOP filibuster on two more pieces of legislation, setting the stage for President Biden's infrastructure agenda to pass in two packages with simple majority votes. That from the Hill. They report it's a win for Senate Majority Leader Schumer. The Hill notes that allows him to pass Biden's $2.25 trillion package by revising the fiscal 2021 budget resolution. And thousands of low-income college students in Colorado now have an easier path to food assistance during the pandemic after the federal government issued temporary changes to its qualification policies for SNAP. Benu Amun-Ra is a Naropa University student who cares for her child and mother. She says SNAP has been a game changer. What I can afford now allows me to go to local grocery stores to purchase fresh produce and fruits and vegetables. Students with an expected family contribution of zero based on federal financial aid calculations and those eligible for work study, even if they don't currently have a job, may be eligible for $234 per month or more in food benefits. A family of four can receive $782 to buy food. A new online guide offers information on navigating the enrollment process at hungerfreecolorado.org. I'm Eric Galatis. This is PNS. Community colleges nationwide are bracing for another drop in enrollment this year, especially among students of color. Data from the National College Attainment Network shows only about 55% of high school seniors have applied for federal financial aid. And the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center reports that in 2020, first-time enrollment was down 13% overall and almost 20% among Latino students. Paul Feast with the California Community College's Chancellor's Office says the pandemic has severely disrupted potential students' lives. Many of our students are facing challenges with losing their jobs, having lower wages, having to care for their children, you know, as they're being homeschooled. I'm Suzanne Potter. Students can find a wealth of information on financial aid and other programs at stayenroll.com and icanaffordcollege.com. And even as more Nevada kids are heading back to their on-campus classrooms, public education advocates are calling on school districts to improve distance learning. Social distancing can be almost impossible when grandparents are caregivers. Research shows nationwide Latino families have the second largest share of multi-generational households at 27%, just behind Asians at 29%. Rebecca Garcia is president of the Nevada Parent Teacher Association. Not only have we, the majority of kids in Nevada, been distance learning this whole time, a lot are going to continue to distance learn, and we still, nine months in, haven't made it a consistent quality opportunity for all kids. Business Insider looked at census data and found almost 50,000 multi-generational households in Nevada. That is the ninth highest rate in the country at just over 4%. Finally, Diane Bernard tells us that Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam, proposes fast-tracking marijuana legalization to July 1. Healthcare advocates are concerned that high-potency cannabis products could harm the health of Virginians, particularly young people. 
Dr. Jonathan Lee with Addiction Treatment Facility, the Farley Center in Williamsburg, says multiple studies show a link between high-potency marijuana and adverse reactions, including anxiety disorders, depression, and even psychotic episodes. He says the National Institute of Drug Abuse finds that 9 to 10 percent of people who use marijuana regularly will become physically dependent on it and experience withdrawal symptoms. It goes up to 17 percent of teenagers who use cannabis, particularly on a daily basis, will develop a substance use disorder to cannabis. Four state legislatures are proposing state-level caps on potency levels of THC. That includes Florida, Massachusetts, and Washington. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service. Remember, a listener supported, heard on great radio stations, and online at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio.